If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 9 this morning. Luke chapter 9. One of the things that I always find interesting and very often humorous is seeing people before they're famous. So you may have uh, actors that are the stars of sitcoms, and yet they're originally in commercials. And you, uh, you, you may not know who they are when you're seeing those commercials, but years later, there's somebody famous. Uh, one of the, the most interesting things, I think, was at the beginning of, or, or rather, I think it's at the end of the Beatles movie, A Hard Day's Night, and they're doing this concert, this big crowd scene, uh, in one of the behind-the-scenes uh, documentaries on the making of that movie and why it's so significant and et cetera, et cetera, they zoomed in and there is a, a 16-year-old Phil Collins in the audience who himself would, would, would go on to be a, a mega music star. And here in the passage before us, we have something similar to that. We, we know after 2,000 years of most of church history of the apostles, we know of their faith, we know of their determination to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. We see Peter and, and John standing before the Jewish authorities saying, uh, you, know, you can beat us, you can kill us, you can do whatever you want, and you better do it because we're not going to shut up about Jesus. Yet before they were the apostles, they were simply 12 disciples. Yes, handpicked and special among all the others that followed Jesus, but not yet the full authorities of which we so often think. And here Jesus is beginning something of their ministry apprenticeship. Here he is sitting them out on their kind of first by themselves short-term mission trip to preach the message that Jesus himself has been preaching. And as we, we, we see this, this now the shift in the gospel of Luke as, as things are beginning to, to take on a different tone and a different emphasis, we see the basics of Christian ministry itself of our own mission and, and lessons about how we should be going and serving today. This is what we want to see this morning. Let's, let's look at it now, beginning at verse 1 of Luke chapter 9. I invite you to follow along as I read. Luke tells us that Jesus called the twelve together, gave them power and authority over demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everyone. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised by the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. This is the word of God this morning. From this first mission of the disciples, we only see the beginnings of their apostolic ministry in the future, but also, again, the same essential principles of our own ministry today. And here's the amazing thing about the New Testament, and that is all of the ministry, all of the activity of God's servants basically looks the same. Uh, certainly, certainly what Jesus did is in terms of atoning for uh, the sins of the world is unique. And yet that was the climax of his ministry. What he did bleeding up to that is the very things that the apostles themselves do, which is the very things that we are to follow their example in. And so there is this consistency of ministry throughout the page of the New Testament and church history right up to us today. 
So what can we glean from this passage? What can we learn about how we are to minister in our mission today? First of all, we need to see the pattern of our ministry, the pattern of ministry. In verses 1 and 2, we see a threefold pattern. And here, if we understand this, we understand how our lives fit into the totality of God's plan. First of all, we see that the disciples were called. We see that the disciples were called. In verse 1, Jesus, it says, called the twelve together. Now, I want you to stop and think for a minute about who these guys are. At, At this moment in their life, think about who Jesus is calling to himself as he prepares to send them out on mission. So, some of you know that um, on, on uh, Thursday and Friday of this week, I got to spend two days listening to one of the, the, the living men. I, I admire lots of dead men, but some living men as well. Um, uh, one of the, the men that I admire that who is still alive teach on Christian leadership. That was uh, Dr. Albert Moeller. And some of you know why he is to be admired. Some, some of you do not. And we can't go into all, all the details here. But suffice to say, he went headlong into an impossible situation and did what had never been done before. He went to a seminary, an institution of theological learning that had started uh, conservative, believing in things like the sufficiency of Scripture and the virgin birth of Jesus Christ and his bodily resurrection. And it had gone liberal denying all of those things. And some, at least some professors did. He went there uh, at the direction of, of our convention, Southern Baptist messengers who, who, who voted for trustees and, and were supportive of him. He went and he turned that seminary around so that now it teaches conservative biblical theology. Again, it had never been done before and perhaps it may never be done again. And when you're with this man, you understand, at least in human terms, how this could, how this could be done. He's not only the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, he's a respected author. He gives a daily podcast listened to by millions as he analyzes the, the, the biggest news stories of the world from a Christian perspective. He sits on several boards and councils of various uh, uh, Christian groups. He reads between five to ten books a week. We were there on Friday night, we were at his library. And, and you know when urban myths develop about a man's library, it's something special. And, and, and such is the, the case with him. So, so we go in there and there are 65 to 70,000 volumes lining the climate controlled shelves of this man's basement. I mean, it's, it, the library is twice as big as a library in my kids elementary school. And, and it's not just, it's not just the, the books. There's memorabilia that is just all over the place and nooks and crannies and walls. I mean, you couldn't see walls. It was either a shelf or there was a picture or something hanging there. There's a, there's a page from one of the first printings of, of Luther's Bible in German. There's a handwritten note from, from Sir Winston Churchill on there. So, so when you're seeing the glory of this thing, first of all, you feel completely and utterly inadequate intellectually. You just realize, I am way out of my league here. But there's also, along with that, this, this sense of inspiration to try and be better than, than what you are. Now, now, why am I telling you about all these things? Well, first of all, so that way when you look at my books, you, you realize how pitiful my book addiction is. And, and you, don't, you, you, you now think better of me and not less. But, um, but more than that, when, when you meet Dr. Moeller, it's kind of obvious why he would be someone on the front line of Christian mission. Uh, intellectually, spiritually, providentially. God created that man for that task. But he stands in sharp, sharp contrast to the individuals that we see in this passage. These even here are not the, the, the apostles of the book of Acts. What we have here is a tax collector. We have fishermen. We have everyday guys. 
the only preparation they have had for this significant calling is that they have been with Jesus. That's it. That's it. This is before the cross and resurrection, which forever changed their lives and became the foundation of their message and their ministry. Before any of that, here's the short-term apprenticeship where Jesus is entrusting him, as we'll see in a minute, with power and authority and a message and sending them out on his behalf. And they're just average guys. They're not yet the 12 apostles. They're just the 12. But here's what matters the most. They are called by God to this task. And so even today, we may feel out of our league when it comes to ministry, when it comes to the mission of making disciples. We may feel like that we are not well equipped, that we are not important enough to be involved in this task, that God can't use us in this task. But here's the reality. He used these guys. You don't have to be a Dr. Muller. You don't have to be whatever famous preacher that you admire or, or perhaps even somebody in this church that you admire, so, so someone older you and more advanced in the faith and you, you think, man, I could just be like that person. You don't have to be that. Here's all that matters is that you are called by Christ himself to this task. That is what equips you. That is what makes you ready is that Jesus himself has confidence in you to do this. But here's the thing. He doesn't just call us and say, go do this thing. He calls us and in calling us, he also empowers us for the task. That's the second thing that we see. That in this threefold pattern of ministry, we're not just called, we're also empowered. Luke says that Jesus gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Power denotes the capacity to do something, while authority denotes the right to do something. So before this, only Christ had the power and the authority to cast out demons and heal. But now he extends that to his disciples. I mean, can you imagine that? You know, Jesus, remember the last passage we looked at where the woman with the hemorrhage came up and touched the hem of his garment. He said, I felt the power go out of me when you were healed. Did the, did the disciples feel the power come into them? Did, 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 they, did they feel different physically, spiritually? I, I have no idea, but it, it certainly would have given them confidence for the mission, wouldn't it? It, it, it certainly would, would have made them a, a little braver, a little less fearful about where they're going. Likewise today, Jesus still empowers his people for their mission. And we're not given the same authority that these disciples, these one-day apostles had we do not have the authority to heal and cast out demons at will. Nevertheless, he has given us his spirit. Upon salvation, we are given Christ's Holy Spirit, his gift to us. And he is more than enough for us to accomplish all the ministry that Christ is going to call us to. If we are willing to follow his lead and pursue his filling in our lives. In other words, Jesus even today does not leave us by ourselves to get the job done. He is with us. His power is flowing through us through the presence of his own spirit. But what is that mission? What is that job that he has called us to, that he has empowered us to? Here we see the third element of our essential pattern of ministry, and that is this, that we are sent. That we are sent. Verse 2 says that Jesus sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So two things in being sent. First of all, he sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, what is the kingdom of God? 
Well, it's not about a physical territory. We think of a kingdom. We think of a realm. We think of a land. We, we, we think of, uh, of, of political boundaries on, on maps. But that's not the kingdom of God. It's not a physical territory. It's not, it's not a fortress to be defended. The kingdom of God is about the authority to rule and the exercise of that rule. Specifically, a rule over the minds and hearts of people. That's where the kingdom of God exists. The message they preached was that the good, was this good news that God's reign was now here. It was breaking into the world. Now in one sense, he'd always been ruling over his people. He always rules over all things. But God is now making his presence known in greater ways because God has sent his son, the promised savior of the world. He is doing something new. This kingdom is coming and now there is going to be a sharper dividing line among humanity. Now this kingdom is, is breaking forward, not just among uh, Israel, but eventually it's going to be going to all the world, even among the Gentiles, even us sitting here today. And the question is, are you going to embrace that kingdom? Are you going to yield to God's rule over your life? Or are you going to reject him? Are you going to turn away? This is the, this is the message that they are proclaiming. And it, we're told that it is good news. Why? Why is it good news? It's good news because God has not left sinners to themselves. That's the good news. He doesn't say, I am coming and you better get your lives in shape and get ready or else judgment's going to come. That's not the message. The message is, I am coming, you're not fit for my kingdom, but I will make you fit. I will transform your heart. I will give you my spirit. You will be changed and be made fit for my kingdom. Does that mean we need to repent of our sins? Absolutely. But in repenting, we are turning away from those things toward the living God and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus sent them to preach, but he also sent them to heal. And again, here is one area of ministry where, where uh, their ministry differs from ours in substance, but not in essence. In other words, the... The particulars are different, but not the main emphasis here. We do not have the same power and authority over the miraculous. I know there are videos on YouTube that allow us to see that at least some preachers don't think that's the case. And uh, if you want some humorous ones, you can come in, and uh, sadly humorous, you can come and, and see me afterwards. But my point is, these men had a unique ministry in redemptive history. The power and authority they had over the, over the demonic and over healings was there for this point to verify the message. It was to show, we say God's ruling and reigning, that, that, that he's doing something new. How do we know? Here's how you know. Get up and walk. And the lame guy gets up and walks. And we say, whoa, these guys are telling a real message. God is doing something new. His power is being manifest. His reign is coming into the world. Nevertheless, throughout the Bible, it is clear that, that our ministry of the word is also to be accompanied by a ministry of works. That we are to serve the physical needs of the people. But here's the deal. I can't take cancer away from somebody. I, can't, I would love to be able to do that. But I can't do that. I've not been given that kind of authority like the disciples did. But here's what I can do. I can go and encourage the person with cancer. I, I, I can make them food. I can take them to the hospital. I can watch their kids. I can, I can open up the word of God and read to them and pray with them. That's what I can do. I can't make the lame walk. Uh, I mean, you, you realize that, that, that there are times when you are visiting someone in the hospital and, and you're just thinking, you know, uh, I, I'm 2,000 years too late. 
You would love to be able to just put your hands on them and say, get the tubes out of your face, we're going home. And you can't do that. You can't do that. I can't make the lame walk, but I can push their wheelchair. I can, I can pick them up and, and take them places. I can, I, can, I can seek to tell them and point them about Jesus Christ and the fact that one day because of the promises that we have in Him that, that they won't need that wheelchair one day. So though the outworking on the outside might be different, the intention of good works is the same even today. It validates, it underscores, it shows the reality of the Christian message that yes, Jesus saves sinners. And in saving sinners, it's not just a future event. He gives them eternal life now. He gives them life with himself now. And that means their lives are being transformed now. And the way that is seen is in our self-sacrificial, loving service towards others. This is what it means to be sent by God. Therefore, this is the pattern of ministry, being called, empowered, empowered, and sent. But then Jesus goes to describe also the means of ministry. The means of ministry. What is it going to look like when we go and actually uh, fulfill this ministry? Well, some of you know that my understanding and, and knowledge of sports is just legendary. Nevertheless, I did find an interesting story as I was preparing this, and that is about Coy Detmer. Some of you may know that name. He was the former quarterback for the Philadelphia Eagles. Apparently, when he went on away games, he never took luggage. He, he, he wore the outfit uh, traveling. Uh, when he got there, uh, they had his, uh, his, his uniform, his pads ready, and so uh, he put that on, and on the way home, he just put on the, 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 the clothes that he wore there. The whole season, he would do this. The only thing he took with him was a toothbrush in his back pocket. That seems like traveling light, and frankly, I can't imagine it, but what Jesus tells the disciples to do here is far and beyond even that. Verse 3, he says, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. Don't take a change of underwear. And verse 4, he says, Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went to the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now remember, they're not being sent out as full-fledged apostles. This is not like the, their lifetime commission, boom, be gone, uh, you know, have a nice life, we'll see you on the other side. This is, just a, this is a mission of a few weeks here that they're being sent out to. So they don't always go this way. Nevertheless, they do go this way here. And in fact, I think he's, he's telling them to go this way because he's trying to teach them two things, two principles that they will carry with them through the larger task, the larger calling, the larger mission, two lessons that we should learn today. The first lesson is this, the lesson of dependence. The lesson of dependence. That, that's part of the means by which we engage in ministry is by our dependence upon God. I mean, just think about this practically. If you're, if you're preaching about an all-powerful, all-sufficient God who is coming into the world to save sinners who are incapable of seeing themselves, and you need to respond to Him by dying to yourself and trusting everything over to Him, it might undercut your message if you're dragging five suitcases behind you. Well, you want us to depend on God, but how come you're not? But more than just a, a, a appearances, Jesus is again getting his disciples ready for the larger mission by getting them to be totally dependent on God. And notice how that support from God will come. 
It's not going to be like Israel in the wilderness. Manna is not going to be falling from heaven. Quail uh, are, are not going to, to, to flock out of the woods that they can kill and eat for dinner. No, God is going to provide to the generosity of his people. Is that what the text says? Whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. The disciples are dependent upon the fact that as they go from village to village, there are going to be people sympathetic to their message who will see them for what they are, itinerant preachers sent from Jesus, and invite them to stay in their house and to support them on their path. Think about the effect that that should have had on them. Think about the effect that should have on us. It should cause us to think about our own level of dependence on God. Not just for material needs, but especially for spiritual needs. Someone has said that if you really want to grow your prayer life, you should, you should try and raise kids. I, I think that's probably good advice. Because, because suddenly your helplessness is made evident. You can't change their heart. You can teach them. You can, you can, you can instruct them. You can guide them. You can discipline them. But you are completely incapable of changing their heart. And therefore, you're on your knees constantly pleading that God not only changes your heart, that you might love them and be patient with them and have wisdom towards them, but that he might use what you're seeking to do to transform their lives. You're calling out to God because you realize you can't do it alone. You need his grace flowing in your life and in their life. And we're never going to be truly dependent upon God until we feel our need for His empowering Spirit. Someone wrote in a, in a book a couple of years ago that 75 to 80 percent, of course, I don't know what, where he got that statistic, but 75 to 80 percent of everything that goes on in church can be done apart from the Holy Spirit. Do you understand what he's saying there? We, we program everything. We, we plan everything out. And then we just kind of turn it on and let the machine run. And we know everything's just going to fall in place and happen. And it's not he's not against planning and programming. What he's against is our dependence upon those things. Here's the reality. We can have all the best curriculum and Bible study material in the world. If God doesn't show up, nothing's going to change. Nothing's going to happen. This is why we have to be a people of prayer. If we are not a people of prayer, then it shows we are not dependent upon God. In fact, sinfully, we are independent of God in trying to live that way. It, it is a grief to the Holy Spirit if we are not a praying people, individually and corporately. Secondly, though, think about the effect this should have on the disciples' understanding and of our understanding of believing community. The disciples were totally reliant on the hospitality of others. Now, for sure, there are social and cultural expectations when it comes to the hospitality of um, practices in their day. But that's not all that we're talking about here. You know, you know, it, it, they didn't just say, well, come in and we'll give you a meal. We'll let you have the night and then tomorrow you'll be on your way. No, he says you go to the house and you stay there. And part of that's for the disciples to keep them humble. How easy would it have been for them to say, well, I'm going to go with this family and that food was nice. But, you know, now this other family who's more, more, they're wealthier. And they're saying, well, why don't you come stay with us? And it's a nicer house. It's a bigger bed. It's better food. We'll go there for a couple of days. And then a, a, an even more prominent family says, well, why don't you come to our house? And so they, they begin to, to feel like, you know, look at, look, look at what God's giving us. Look, look at how great we are. And he says, no, no, no. You find a house and you just stay there the whole time you're in the village. And so the expectation exceeds basic first century Near Eastern hospitality. 
This is we are willing to sacrifice long term to support you and the mission that Jesus has called you to. And here's what I think we should learn from that. It's not just dependence upon God, but dependence upon the community that God gives to us. Sometimes church can be reduced to this hour right here, the Sunday service. This is not church. This is a gathering of the church in a building. And what that means is that our our dependence, our life with this group of people must go beyond just this time. The church is the new covenant community of faith. It is the body of Christ. It is the people that we should be closest to, spend the most time with, care about the most, and depend upon the most. See, God expects that we will be aided in our sanctification by this church, by the people sitting around you in these pews. I'll go further than that. In terms of maturity, in terms of your growth as a Christian, if you do not come to a place where you are, not just in word, but realistically dependent upon a church, a local church, you will, you, there are places that you will never achieve sanctification. Your growth with God will always be hindered. You say, well, where do you get that? Just read the New Testament. I mean, just read the, le- the commands that we have to bear with one another, to love one another, to serve with one another, to teach one another. Hebrews says, exhort daily. Now, you might get away with that with Twitter these days. Well, they didn't have that in the first century. What is the expectation? You are going to be interacting with the church every day of your life. That there is going to be such a web of dependence and interrelatedness that we know apart from the grace of the community that God gives us, we will not be growing as we should. I need, I need, first of all, I need two other pastors to look me in the face and say, you're wrong on this. This There's a sinful attitude in you and you need to change your mind. You need to repent. But beyond that, I need the, the fellowship and the friendship of, uh, of those around me. I, I, I need the prayers and the encouragement. I can't, I can't do this task if I don't have a community. It's the reason why we don't just record the service and throw it up on a screen and I sit somewhere in Texas with my feet up drinking a Coke all day. It doesn't work that way. We have to be building and investing in one another's lives. We are dependent on one another. So if you think church is something you just dip your toe in, it's going to show up for a service and it's going to be great. You are sadly mistaken. You are fooling yourself about how mature you are in Christ and where you can go in terms of that maturity with Christ. Receiving and giving. Correction, forgiveness, instruction, prayer, love, counsel, emotional support, acts of kindness and mercy. These are not only commanded to us by God, but they are profitable things for our good from God. These are the things that help us grow in Christ and persevere in our faith. Therefore, we need to be and we need to learn to be dependent in our mission. And part of that dependence comes because there is an urgency to our task. This is the second means of ministry that we see demonstrated for us here. There is an urgency to our task. Jesus says, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. But he also says, stay in people's homes and welcome you. But then notice this, if they reject your message, if you go to the village and no one wants to hear you, leave that town and shake off the dust from your feet. 
In other words, you don't say, well, this is a hard area. Let's stay here for, for a few weeks and see if we can really crack this, this thing. He says, nope. They don't listen to you. They don't receive you. No one says, hey, stay with me. I like what, I, you know, I want to hear more. He says, just leave. Just leave. Now, on one level, that, that may seem harsh to us. We may not get it. But um, if, if you're a Bible reader, there's another problem here. Mark records the exact same commissioning here, but he, but he changes it. He doesn't say, he doesn't say, don't take a staff. In fact, he says, you're allowed to take a staff. He says, Jesus charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. So, so which is it? Did Jesus say you can, don't take anything except for a staff, or did he say don't take a staff? Well, it's not an easy question to answer because it's pretty direct. It's, you know, sometimes we know that, that Luke will leave things out because it's not important to him for what he's trying to write. It's not that it didn't happen or it's not true. He just doesn't care. He's trying to get to something else. But here it seems to be pretty explicitly contradictory. I think the way we should understand it is to say that like the tunic, uh, travelers would often take more than one stick with them. And I think the point that maybe Luke is getting at is that like you don't take two tunics, you're not taking more than one staff. You're just taking the basic, the essentials. And if that's true, then what they're taking is one tunic, one belt, their sandals, and only one staff. Now, does that sound at all familiar to you? Put on your belt. Don't take a second tunic. Keep your sandals on and put your staff in your hand. While you eat the Passover meal. Isn't that what Moses commanded the people of Israel? Now why was that? Because that night the angel of death was coming. And he was going to wipe out the firstborn of every person and animal in the land of Egypt. And the next morning uh, Egypt was going to vomit them out of the country. Just get out. We are tired of you. We are tired of your God. And now you've brought this, this terrible plague upon us. Just leave. And he says, you got to get ready because you are going to be up and at him and out of here. I am liberating you at dawn's first light. There was an urgency, not just to that meal, but to their preparations. And I don't think we should miss the fact that Jesus is telling them here, this is how you go on this trip. We're not telling you here to, 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 to move to a town, to put down roots, uh, to buy some furniture, uh, you know, have some kids. No, on this trip, it is urgency. It is get ready and go and don't look behind. That's the reason why he says, hey, if they're not listening to you, move on. There's other villages. We are kicking this thing off. We are, we are going national with the kingdom of God and its message of joy for all peoples. We got to get moving. And if people are sinful and don't respond, he says, in this case, don't worry about it. This is why whenever, whenever we do mission trips, I tell people, look, we've only got a week, two weeks, maybe at the most. You know what that means? That means you're going to eat a lot of weird foods. You're going to be in a lot of uncomfortable situations. You're not going to get as much sleep as you would like to have. But don't worry, you can sleep on the plane and have a Big Mac on when you get home. You're there for a task, a short time. There is urgency to get everything in that you can possibly get in. That's what Jesus is telling them here today. And so there are some that will look to a past like this and say, see, we're all meant, we're all called to poverty. Well, that's great until, you know, the church needs money to do something, right? How do you print Bibles if everybody's poor? That doesn't work. Somebody somewhere has to have money to do things. And so the calling is never an absolute calling to poverty. But here's what it is. Here's what it's a part of. And that's an absolute calling to live simply. 
to keep a loose grip on the things of this world and to feel truly in our hearts the urgency of the mission that we have. So, so, so when we have nice homes and we're sitting in comfort, we're relaxing in the company of friends or at our family, with our family, playing with our kids on our couches after, after dinner, here's a pleasant thought. Everything around you is going to burn one day. It's all going to be gone one day. Here's the only thing that's going to last, people. That's it, people. So whether it's Hindu neighbors or homosexual neighbors or really nice, friendly, the best people you would meet in your life, atheist neighbors, they got to hear the gospel. Because their house is gone, their grass is gone, the United States of America is gone, this world is gone, as God comes in judgment and makes one completely new for his people. There, you know, uh, I, I'll just, I'll plant my flag here, okay? And, and, and you can, you can either be mad at me or you can, or you can be happy with me, but, um, there, there, there is no left behind book reality in which case the end of the world is coming. You get one chance in this life and that's it. There is no mysterious rapture and now we're leaving tapes behind and people are getting saved. I don't find any evidence for that in the New Testament. You know what that means? Our task is urgent. There is a king, and he is returning, and he is angry at the rebellion of his creatures. And in this life, he extends a message of peace. He extends a message of joy and salvation. Flee from the wrath to come. You can't earn it. You're not going to be good enough. But I will give it to you because I love you and I want to show mercy. But if you reject that message, there is no future hope. There is no future hope. There is no post-mortem evangelism. There is nothing you have this life, you die, and then comes the judgment. And frankly, I think part of the reason why we lack urgency sometimes, at least from some people that I hear, in that task of telling, is because we think, well, it doesn't matter. Even if Jesus comes back, they'll still be seven and a half years and they can believe then. That's not the way it works in the Bible. Show me a verse that says that. I, you don't see it. Paul, Peter, the apostles, Jesus are saying, I'm going to come back in judgment and you're not going to know when it is. And therefore, we've got to tell. We have to be ready. We, we should not be asleep at the wheel when Jesus comes. I, 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 don't, I don't want to be someplace in my life where I, I, I'm really not caring about what's going on in the world. I just have my job and I have my family and everything is comfortable. And then Jesus shows up. That will be an embarrassment for me. That, that, that would be shameful to me. And so we learn even here there is a sense of urgency with which we go. Does that mean that we can't ever relax? We can't ever go see a movie? We can't ever grab up our family in our arms and hug and kiss them? No, of course not. God gives these things to us for our refreshment, for, for recharging our batteries. But here's the thing. They're always temporary. You don't spend three years just at the movie theater. Well, bring another hot dog in, I'm staying for the next showing. You, you, that's not the mindset with which we live. We know there are times for rest and refreshment, but the urgent call in our life is to be telling people of the kingdom of God. It's coming in Christ. Well, if we're doing that, we need to be ready for the last thing, and that is the response to ministry. The response to ministry. We see two responses. First of all, there is the obedient response. There is the obedient response. The disciples departed, went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. And Jesus said, men, come here. Let me tell you what we're doing. Here's the game plan. I'm giving you power. I've given you a message. You're going to go and preach. And you know what? They did it. 
they obeyed. So sometimes we forget that the, that the, the Christian confession, the thing that has been the exact saying that every true Christian has always said throughout time in a myriad of languages, but always translated the same way is this, Jesus is Lord. Is he a friend? Absolutely. Is he our elder brother? Absolutely. Is he the, is he, is he the lover of our souls? Absolutely. But guess what? He is still Lord. That means when he speaks, we obey. That's the, that's the clear calling of discipleship in the New Testament. Jesus says in John 10, My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. But what do we know? That's not easy. So we wimp out. Billy Graham used to always say, Salvation is free, but discipleship costs everything we have. We like the salvation, but we don't like the discipleship. Right? But here's what the disciples did. They said, sure, we'll go. We're going to leave our, our, we're going to leave our junk behind and we're going to go exactly the way you tell us to do. They obeyed. And they had beliefs about him as the Messiah. But you understand, we know more than they did. At least in this passage especially. We, we've read of the cross. We've read of the resurrection. We've read of the ascension. We have, we have what none of them but one had. The revelation given to us through John the Apostle. Of Jesus standing exalted in glory as the supreme sovereign over all of creation. With, with, with his word penetrating into the lives of people like a sharp sword. His eyes burning with infinite holiness to, to which the, all of, all of the, all of heaven, all of the saints and angels bowing down saying, worthy are you. We have that vision the way they didn't. They went. Why aren't we going? If we're not going. Here's the sad reality. We say Jesus is Lord, but how many times has some pathetic bobble of the world, some ridiculously small but lustful thought, some minuscule desire has led us to deny his lordship over our lives? Daily basis? An hourly basis? How many of us reject this mission by simply not fulfilling it? We choose work or family or comfort or money over the calling that Christ has on our lives. Now, here's, here's the reality. I, I'm not trying to guilt anybody into doing anything. But here's the reality. If you have a king over a kingdom, and you are a member of that kingdom, if you benefit from all of the leadership, and the benevolence, and the generosity, and the glory of the king in whose kingdom you live, you ought to obey that king. He's worth it. That's the obedient response that, that we should embrace as we see pattern in the apostles. But then here's the other thing. We've got to get ready for a hostile response. We have to be ready for a hostile response. If, if, if we're excited to go and to be involved, and by go, you understand what I'm saying? I'm not just saying like, you know, get a plane ticket and a passport and you're out of here. I'm saying just walk down the street. Okay? Sometimes that's how we're sent. We just, we just walk down the street. Maybe it's walking across the room at a restaurant to see somebody who's, you know, reading uh, Thus Spoke Zarathustra by, by the atheist philosopher. And we say, you know, that guy committed a suicide after he wrote that. Maybe that's not the best way to be shaping your, your thinking. You want to hear about something better? Remember about a message of love and joy and peace and hope and life? But it might be go to the nations. So, so some of you sit here and you may just think, you know, that's just not me. Well, how do you know it's not you? How do you know it's not you? I mean, the majority of us probably won't be going. But why Why not you? They say, well, because I, I've got this and i got this. Well, that's fine. But 
As long as it's not sinful, are you sure that's, that's God's best for your life? It's always okay to say no to something and to pursue something else. But however we go, we ought to be prepared for a hostile response. Remember what Jesus says? There's going to be places you go and they're not going to receive you. Dust off your feet and move on. Jesus knows that not everyone's going to embrace the gospel that we preach. And even today, some people are going to love it and other people are going to despise it. I often do my sermon work in the week, at least a couple hours of it, in a public place. I've got my laptop up and I've got a Bible sitting there and I've got some commentaries out and I'm making notes and I'm typing and I'm, you know, if I'm up early, I've got glasses on and I'm rubbing my eyes and I'm drinking coffee and I'm trying to stay awake and, and get focused and, and understand what in the world is this saying so that I can be changed and I can say something. But you know what? Every time I'm in public, I always have this thought, who's going to come up and talk to me? Because I've seen before someone minding their own business as a Christian uh, reading the Bible or whatever, and someone comes up and just unloads the rebellious thoughts of their heart on them. How, how weak-minded, how narrow-minded, how, how uh, prejudiced can you be to be a Christian? Don't you feel ashamed of yourself? And that's just sitting there reading the Bible. Imagine when you try and open your mouth and talk to somebody, the response you might get. It's worse sometimes. That's okay, though. That's okay. They killed Jesus. What, what do you expect? Right? Isn't that what he said? That the servants are not greater than the master. Notice this amazing specific response though. Verse 7. Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening. He was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead. By some that Elijah had appeared. And by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John, I beheaded. But who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Now, here's a man of absolute wealth and power. I mean, in this area, there is no greater authority. And Jesus makes him nervous. Why? Because it reminds him of his weakness and his sinfulness. You know, John used to come and preach to him and tell him, even as the, the king of that area, here's, here's your sin. And here's why you need to repent because God's judgment is coming. And, and Herod kind of endured it. He kind of thought John was, was a little bit of a joke, but he also thought he was powerful. He knew he was right. That his actions were wicked. But you know what? The one thing that the one person who couldn't tolerate it was his wife. And so she had this scheme to get John killed. And so eventually off with his head it was. And now this man's afraid. Literally, he thinks he's being haunted by his sin. That John may have come back from the dead. He wants to see Jesus not because he's like, oh, this is interesting. I I might embrace this religious philosophy. No, he says, I want to see if it's a ghost or not. I want to see face to face. Is this John? Is this the guy whose head sat on a silver platter at my dinner table? Or is this somebody else? What, 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 what is this? What's going on here? And it's a helpful reminder of why people so often re reject Jesus. It's because the message of unending love and grace and salvation, of joy and knowing and being fellowship with God, it comes with an introduction that is not that helpful for most people. And that is, you're a sinner. You're terrible. You deserve an eternity in hell but God will forgive you. Most people don't like that stuff. But more than that, even if they say, okay, well, I'll take the salvation, you get to the Lord part and then they really don't like it. Because their, their life song can't be Frank Sinatra, I did it my way anymore. You know, I just heard somebody say that was the theme song of hell. I did it my way. Yep, and that's why you're at where you're at. Even as Christians, we struggle with this, don't we? We want to be the master of our life. We want to be the commander of our fate. We want to be in charge. We want to be Lord. But that's not the calling that God gives to us. It's realize you're making your life a mess. 
In part because your sin will bring about consequences in this life. Long term, your sin's going to bring you to hell. And yet with me, if you will, if you will bend the knee and acknowledge, I created you, I made you, I'm king over your life, not only will, will you know fellowship with me, you'll be my friend, but you'll be given direction that leads to joy in life, leads to the satisfaction of your soul in this life, not hell. Not hell. And so here's the rub. People don't want to yield. They don't want to bend the knee. And therefore, we have to be ready for the hostile response. You have to know it's coming. You know, there is power in the gospel. Jesus tells us if we sow the seed, people will believe. And we take encouragement in that. That's what motivates us. But you have to be ready that, that for everyone who believes, there's going to be 10 or 20 who don't and who may be hostile towards you. And you've got to be ready for that. Jesus says, just like the apostles, just like the 12 in this text, we are also called, empowered, and sent. We are called to faith in Christ. We are empowered by the gift of His Spirit, and we are sent on this mission of proclaiming the kingdom of God. The question is, are we going? And if not, will we now go? Father, we're thankful for Your Word. We're thankful for its instruction that it gives us. And God... For some, this may have sounded like a hard message. A message of, of disappointment as they're not living how they should. But God, it should be a message of encouragement to us. Because though we are called to hard things, God promises to be with us in those hard things. God promises that the joy that comes from doing hard, those hard things is, a, is unmeasurable in this life. We are promised that it is not us. It is not our responsibility to see people saved. It is simply our responsibility to follow Jesus, to tell people about Him, and that you are the one, through your Spirit, through your Word, that will bring about the obedience of faith. So, Father, as we hear this and perhaps have have our toes stepped on as we realize that that we're not living out the mission, perhaps we're not even mindful of that mission. God, help us to be encouraged as well, to know that, that you are there with us in the midst of these things, that you send us out and you've given us your spirit to go before and to go with us, to protect us and to guide us, to give us wisdom. And that, Father, there will be no greater joy than to be able to stand before you and said, you are my Lord and I have lived like it. Father, we need your grace for that, and so we pray that you would give it to us, God. Give us faith to believe these things. Give us the desire to live them out. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. As we begin to respond,